Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. It's been a month and I'm back with the most explosive, most incredible story I've ever heard, never mind recorded, and that's with David Galbraith. This week's guest is a pro MMA fighter, artist, child development officer, gym owner, mental performance coach, and devoted father. His journey is a roller coaster through addiction, extreme violence, gang culture, and danger in Glasgow's toughest areas, Drumchapel and Yoker. For David, survival meant embracing that violence was his currency, leading David down a treacherous path of knife attacks, police chases, betrayal, and near-death encounters. But when faced with the firearms charge and the stab attack, David had three choices. Death, jail, or redemption. Guess what one he chose? Get ready to witness how David turned his life around through MMA and became a force to be reckoned with. His explosive career as the number one ranked lightweight in the country will leave you in awe. But that's not all. He is now a real-life superhero and father to Glasgow's community and a mentor to so many, including myself. This podcast is not just a story. It's a life-changing documentation of one man's incredible transformation. I'm so proud to call David a friend and it's nothing but an honour to share his story with you. An untold story of one man's resilience and I'm so proud on the 29th of July last Saturday we premiered it live to his gym in Maryhill. There was tears, there was laughter and a whole lot of community spirit. Please keep that community spirit alive and share this with a friend, a work colleague, a group chat. Give it five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave me a wee review. This means the world. Thank you so much for giving me this privilege to interview such an amazing guest. But before we get into that, I want to shout out this week's sponsor is this week's guest, David Galbraith and his gym, New Life Gym in Maryhill in Glasgow. It's an inclusive mixed martial arts gym based in Maryhill, Glasgow, established in 2013. Their goal has always been to create a warm and friendly environment where anyone can access training, no matter where they come from or what they're doing. They offer Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu... Muay Thai, MMA, mental performance coaching, boxing, wrestling and everything in between. Whether your goal is to compete or simply get yourself moving uh, or in shape or to be confident, they're always happy to have a chat. So visit New Life Gym in Mary Hill and also you should access David Galbraith's mental performance training. Give it a Google, give him a search on Instagram, reach out and get involved. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the amazing, transformative David Galbraith. David Galbraith, welcome to the Development by David podcast. Finally, we're doing this. Thank you. It's a real honor and privilege to be here. Mate, we've had probably like 10 podcasts in our friendship already. Every time we meet, <laughs> we just go balls to the wall in terms of just exposing who we are. Um, and I guess for context sake, my best mate Keegan here and I moved to Glasgow towards the beginning of the year, felt lost, didn't have a sense of community. We're really new here, no friends. And I stumbled into your gym alongside Keegan and this well-dressed kind of bald, muscular man <laughs> approached me. Right. And I didn't know if he was like a parent or he was like the owner or he was just an influential person in the, in the area. But what was weird was. Seeing someone so sharp dressed, but someone that also looked quite hardened and violent, you could tell that they'd been through stuff, but also so soft in nature. It was like seeing like a monkey on a unicycle with symbols, <laughs> like uniquely or individually, those things aren't that impressive, but combined, it's almost like an illusion. And I feel like your whole story is like an illusion. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much for welcoming us into your gym, into your arms. And 
Mate, it's been a pleasure to get to know you already. Absolutely. And going back to that first time that we, we met, like I felt I did I always feel a connection, people come in through the, the door in your life, Jim, and um I felt that we, we kinda clicked straight away and, and, and got chatting. So um it was it was it was good to, to connect and like you say it's I think there's been about ten podcasts since then and I've become my fan uh the, the podcast and, and feel that it's been a, a part of my development as well. So it's a really humbling experience to be sitting here with you today, especially when looking at the caliber of the guests that you have had, like um just a wee guy, like so that to me is like a, a very humbling experience. So thank you. One thing that I really appreciate about you is that you, like you said, you took a keen interest in the podcast as a listener, but also as a sponsor. As the listeners will know, you have sponsored several episodes now um, that you didn't need to do. You just backed the mission that I was on. And I think it's reflective of the people that had backed you many years ago. Um, so I just want to say thank you for that off the bat as, as well. Um, and getting to know you, I know you mentioned that I've had esteemed guests like billionaires and psychologists and superstars in the podcast, and that made you feel a little bit of an imposter. But when I think back to the the mission statement of the podcast, its motto is to use origin stories as a self-development tool. When I've learned your story, there's no one ever that I've ever met that aligns to the core value of the podcast than you, mate. So to kind of exemplify that or give some context to the listener, I want to show distance traveled but to get there i want to ask who is david galbraith today in 2023 well today i'm a father a husband i am the owner at new life gym head coach which usually involves changing light bulbs and fixing stuff that's, that's broken and doing as i'm told i'm also a child development specialist so i work in schools with children who are facing different challenges in their life including uh, trauma asds um challenges around neurodiversity i am also an artist as well an environmental artist and i am a mental performance coach so i have a lot of different titles and i do a lot of different things um, but um all all of which i really enjoy and really impactful as well and when i use the analogy of you're like a chimpanzee on a unicycle with symbols that's how i see you just now because you have so many varying facets of what makes you you and you're an illusion yourself. Um, but I know this impact, this mission, this drive wasn't always there. It, it stems from a place of walking the walk yourself. So can we take it back to the origin story of David Gilbraith? I, I know it's challenging and I'm really excited to get into it. But let's take it back to Yoker and Drum Chapel. What was life like? So I was brought up in an area in Glasgow, ladies in Glasgow, particularly Drum Chapel and Yoker throughout my childhood and up to early stages in my adult life so for people listening kind of like like maybe abroad or don't know the area drum chapel was voted like the top the bottom 10 like most deprived areas in the uk and the you know the challenges that go on in, in these areas are for anybody who, who doesn't know or isn't aware of it um can involve around violence crime poverty obviously poor mental health, addiction, and, you know, all, all of these these types of labels. And, you know, there'll be people listening today who have also been impacted by living in schemes, the scheme life. Um, you know, growing up, I would say one way of explaining it was very challenging, a lot of trauma, a lot of people dying, um, 
to sound grim and um, and all the the challenges associated with that so I, i'm i'm very lucky in my journey to to be sitting here today and, and have businesses and have a positive impact on those around me and but i had to fight my way to get here like and that's not a metaphor like i had to like fight my way out of the scheme like fight my way out of poverty in a cage and all the other battles that went along with that both mentally and physical listen you listen to you put that together so polished and so enunciated and so intelligent and verbose and well articulated you come across as such an intellectual intelligent person which you are but i know you weren't always like that i know you had problems at school you weren't very kind of engaged when you were at school what was the schooling system like for you and how was your interactions with the schooling system um like so i struggled in in the schooling system i struggled to to read and write i struggled with math i had and still do have some challenges around specifics of, of memory retention like things like like name remember names obviously techniques that you can you can do to overcome these these challenges but I, like i've found out now at the age of i'm 38 now about three years ago i thought i found out that i'm ticking all the boxes for adhd and i have the um i've done the test for dyslexia as well so i'm not just a wee bit dyslexic i am the stage below severely dyslexic so school was a was a real challenge for me and i i found that that never got diagnosed in in school it was never noticed or recognized i was not all the time but i was sometimes and actually a lot of the time i was punished for the the behavior or the lack of ability to perform in that that particular system and i feel in the era that you grew up in the specific era that you grew up these tests didn't exist you don't have parents that would push on the school to test these things mm. so it would probably go unnoticed and it probably manifested itself in you being seen as disruptive the class clown um aggressive perhaps it probably manifested itself in other uh, other ways that went under the radar as neurodiversity i guess a lot of this could be predicated but not solely predicated on i guess those who were supporting you your parents I was wanting to know if you could open up a bit at what your kind of household dynamic was like growing up. Things were challenging at home as well. Um, my parents, I would say, had probably similar challenges to the one at the ones that I had in school. Except for them, when they were growing up, they would get the belt. Like they would get smacked about with the belt. They'd get battered, and they had very challenging upbringings so there was maybe neurodiversity there as well um sorry dad <laughs> <laughs> um but uh we, we often we often have a joke about that but as um genetic and it can be genetic and it can be as a result of some of the the um, indicators are trauma related as well but um things there was i i was lucky compared to a lot of people where i was brought up but things well weren't solid and consistent and um, my mum and dad had a difficult relationship it was a volatile one so it was um, inconsistent and that meant there was inconsistencies and in home life as well so 
going to school was difficult um, and periods going home was difficult as well. Sometimes I wasn't at school um, and I was I was at home a lot and that was that was challenging. So juggling, there was home life, school life, and then there was the street life. And then street life was challenging as well because all of the kids in the street were going through that. And, you know, the, the only way to protect yourself really was to hide in the house. And sometimes I'd done that for like months through fear of like getting my head kicked in. I'm talking about the age of like seven, eight, nine, um, getting battered, like just getting attacked mentally or physically, um, you know, and and then obviously if things um, ideal at home, then that might not be the, the safest space as well. And then school's not a safe place, space as well because you're 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 being punished. And I I don't I that's like my mum and dad done everything they could for me. Like they they done they done a I I, I believe they done a they always aim to do a better job at parenting than what they went through. And I believe they achieved that. And they done a lot of really positive things for me. They got me into kickboxing. They got me into like drama classes and always wanted better for me than what they had. So they, they made a lot of self-sacrifices and made a lot of really positive decisions. But I used to hide a lot of stuff from my parents as well. I would never tell them half the stuff that I was, that I was up to as well. Um, you know, when you're, you're out in the streets, there's all sorts of situations kicking about. What are some of those situations? Um, like, like you're climbing on roofs. Like when I was five, I was climbing on on a roof, um, for about a four story building, and I was up there with, with an older boy, and they tried to push me off, and um, nobody's mind ever got pushed off is because a, a bunch of older kids spotted us. Like we were just up there climbing. I had no sense of fear. I thought it was a game. And when I realised that I could have died if I fell off, then that really installed uh, fear of heights in me. Then there was other stuff like playing the fireworks. You could just buy fireworks off of somebody in the street and you're lighting up fireworks and, and throwing them at each other. Like, because you, <laughs> you think it's funny, do you know what I mean? And it, and it was it was funny at the time. Like, it was, it was a lot of fun until uh, somebody nearly got their face blown off with a firework, um, you know, uh, a lot of it was kind of climbing, you know, jumping back gardens, you, you know, throwing fireworks at each other. Um, I remember there was a situation we were younger, like we all decided that I, I never like quite, I never went as far as like actually doing this part, but I was, my pals were breaking into trains and stealing detonators off them. So running across the railway tracks, breaking into trains, stealing detonators and like emergency escape axes and stuff like that. And the detonators were basically like explosives. So like if you like put it on the train track, it'd be used as like an emergency thing to get the train to stop. Um, and one guy nearly got his, his face and his, his hand blown off with one and we were throwing them about like they were toys. Um, you know, like, I mean, I think a lot of kids, like I, I remember when I was like really young, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, but a wee bit sad. Like I was at five, like I remember having this wee pocket knife and it's like, and I remember these guys came, these boys came down, these guys, the big guys to me at the time, they were like, they were like 10, right? And I was about five and they came down and, and they, were, they were like targeting me and came into my street. And I, I went home, cry, I ran to my auntie's crying and she, 
she went through me and she's like, you better go down there and take him on. And she, she pulled this big rusty chain underneath the sink and I couldn't even lift it and I pulled this, this rusty chain out. And I went up to the guys and um, I remember like, they, they actually ran away and I couldn't, I couldn't even hit them with it for tried, but like, it was it was kind of like dog eat dog like and if you if you didn't if, if you didn't fight if you didn't learn how to fight or you didn't like meet it like that then you would ultimately become the the victim in that situation where you would get like you would not only get battered but there would be like a a social shame about that as well that then you would be deemed as a weak one and then the one who could further then be targeted so it was like as a kid, it felt like do or die. And to be honest, it was not that far off do or die as well. Um, as as things progressed, as I got older, the the violence became more extreme and more even more weaponized. Remember something you told me, mate, was that your currency was violence. That's right. And it seems like you quickly became, in that sense, one of the richest men in the scheme in terms of <laughs> violence. Um, and... I keep hearing you say that you were the lucky one. You're really lucky. Mm. And I now think about my story, which is laden with hardship and challenges, a very similar but different upbringing, mm. but nowhere near as intense. And I'm thinking to myself, I've had it so easy. And then you, in your case, you're thinking, I've had it so easy in comparison to some others around you. Um, it's, it's just such a weird paradox that um, we always have this weird gratitude complex that, oh, we're the lucky ones. In fact, your story is hard. There's no, there's no luck about it, mate, in my opinion. And I want to reflect on your, your fear of heights, how like this one childhood memory is like really ingrained and stuck with you for the rest of your life. And you told me a story about witnessing a brain on the street. Mm. Was that around that same time as well? Yeah, so that was probably about two to three years later. Uh, we moved house into high story flats. And we, uh, I, was, I was with my mum. Never forget the day, as clear, as clear as day. And walk out the high flats and I say to my mum, look, there's a brain on the, on the, um, on the curb. And she's like, David, like, she's rushing, we're going to my grand's or something like that. And she's like, oh, oh, David, stop talking nonsense. Like, no, mum, look, there's a brain. And I wasn't like pure shock to it, but I was still dead young. Like, I was like, there's, there's a brain. And there was no, like, there was nobody attached to it. It was just, like, lying on the pavement. And, and she's like, David. And I was like, no, honestly, mum. And she turned around and she looked at it, but when she's looked at it, she's seen behind the brain, like, a, a guy's body um, on the street. And it was very grotesque. It was, like, body parts everywhere, like, um, you know, you know, really, really um, one of the worst things you could see, really, to be honest with you. And my mum starts screaming and starts crying, and she, you know, she, she pulls me in and she's like really distraught but that for me was like a link from when I was on that roof and that person tried to push me off it to what could have actually happened so I was looking at front of me and going oh wait a minute so it wasn't just the one situation it was then the link because although I knew he was trying to push me off that I didn't really fully understand what could happen if I fell off it I like people tell me you're dying and stuff like that but like I like I witnessed that and you know it was that from there onwards I I do believe that I did have a, a fear of of heights that I've worked on I've worked on myself to, to overcome that or at least most of it anyway and you know that was that was that really like 
it had an impact on me anyway. You can't say that like it never, you know. But um, the 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 height, the fear of heights, did. I do believe that 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 had an impact on on that. That's crazy, mate. It's crazy that I manifested onto something that you've had to work on. An early childhood experience resulted in a trauma or fear that you've then actioned as an adult. Mm. One of the things similar to that that I've seen you do in that kind of repetitive cycle is like you were very open with me about how you were parented as a young person. Mm. And now I see you as a father and a coach to so many young people. And it seems like what you experienced as a young person is maybe poor role modeling perhaps has allowed you and enabled you to be a really great role model. A lot of the lessons from that hard time is what's made you into the kind of father figure and coach that you are. Can we touch on some of the kind of early childhood trauma that might have happened in the household to show the distance travel to where you're at now? Yeah, we, we can we can touch on on some of that. Um, you know, and before before we say that, like that the, there's poor examples of men, mentoring or like of um, you know, parenting, and there's there's good examples. And you know, although things were were difficult at home in terms of like um, some of the situations that that I found myself in, particularly. Um, you know, my mum had a drink problem. You know, it wasn't she wasn't drunk all the time, and sometimes you know, her and my dad would would get into full blown arguments. Barney's had wake up in the middle of the night, and you know, the, these things happened. But at the same time as well, like there was the other side to that as well, where I've learned to be a good father. Like my dad taught me how to be a good father. And ultimately, like he's been a real positive role model in, in my life and really shown me how to be a man. My, my dad's the best man that I'll ever know. And I'm so proud to call myself his son. I'm so proud to, to have him as a father. He's helped navigate me through a lot of stuff. He's given me a long leash with, with the stuff that we're going to talk about as well. Very forgiving. My mum as well, like, like on Mother's Day, like when I was an adult, like, on Mother's Day, she comes up to hospital because I've been stabbed six times. Do you know what I mean? Like stuff, stuff like that. And they always forgave me unconditionally. And you know, I, I know a lot of parents would have kicked kicked me out as well. So you know, we we're all just figuring this stuff out. And you know, I'm figuring out how to be a parent myself. I want to be the best possible parent I can be, and ho hopefully, hopefully, I'm achieving that. But you know. You do learn lessons along the way on what not to do and what to do. And I feel that it's even more important to me sometimes is like, you know, maybe not to do certain things. And, you know, it's it's equally as important to do the things that they, they did do right. Like get me into kickboxing, get me into like martial arts training, you know, get me into acting. Like when I was younger, like a lot of other kids parents would not, never thought of that but at the same time as well like you know there was situations that I was in that I just shouldn't have been in as a child I just, I just shouldn't have been but I, this is well when I work with kids is like I can understand what's happening in their life because I know they can't say anything because it's it's all kept hush behind hush hush behind closed doors you can't get into school until and what's happening in case I was like social work or anything like that going on 
So like I understand that with kids and you know there's there's like that level of understanding, empathy that act that makes me so it's made me so successful what I do with, with children. And so unique as well. And so unique. But I think like that's that is the difference when I when I work with kids, is like I have that map. I have that roadmap. Oh, there was times, and I, and I can talk about this. And it's like when I was a kid, I was when when my mom was on the drink and things weren't good at all. Like I, I remember as a kid, I just I I wished that somebody would come and rescue me. Like some kind of like now you see these like heroes in movies, like something like that. But I know, knowing that, I know that other kids will be thinking that as well. And hopefully I can be that person for them in some level, in some way. Like, I know for, like, some of the kids that I work with, I know for a fact, like, I'm now a father figure in their life because they don't have a father. Their dad's not there. They And they tell, like, remember I went to my kid's sports day and this wee boy just turned around and went, I wish I had a dad like you. And I genuinely walked away crying. I walked away crying because I just, I looked, I looked at that wee boy and I knew I knew he meant it and I knew that things weren't good. And he this was in the same area I was brought up in as well. And you know, but with that I take a huge amount of responsibility and I I, I engage with kids and the way that they need me to engage with them. But again, it's all down to to the experiences and as well, like like I say, the positive experience. My my dad's great with kids as well like he's shown me how, how to be around kids and you know that's something that the right combination that, that i feel that i've got that can really be useful a useful tool and and helping kids overcome some of the same challenges that i managed to overcome as well whether it be through hard times or um, someone helped me get through it and I'll hold my hands up as someone who's a recipient of that support as well. I have a very fragile relationship with my dad and I'll be transparent on the podcast because you're being transparent. I don't really see my dad as a father figure anymore at this age of my life because I'm the caregiver at the moment. And getting to know you recently, despite you being a kind of brother figure, a friend figure, a mentor and a coach, there's aspects of our relationship where I see a father figure in you. The other day I got really good feedback from work and I shared it with you. Mm. And that was like, I shared it with you before I shared it with mm. my dad. And that's the level of trust and vulnerability that you've shown me. The the, the stories that you've told sing a lot of the same hymn, hymns as my own story. And that's developed a relationship where I, I'm proud to present mm. certain milestones in my career and my personal life to you. And I know my mates have as, as well. Um, so... Again, the reason I wanted you on this podcast is show that, to show the distance travelled. Like the fact that you have been so cheerful in adversity, you've taken 30 plus years of hardship almost and transformed it into a support mechanism for people just like you that need it the most. And you have became that superhero. You've became that father figure for not only young people, but people at my age, people that look from the outside in that have their life like totally wrapped up and fine. Like you have became that person for me. So I just want to say thank you. And I want you to know that personally, and I'm going to speak on behalf of people I know, you are definitely that superhero, mate. Um, lost for words, to be honest with you. That's uh, unbelievable. Like, 
happy to say that. Like, I like, I, t- I have a huge sense of pride, a- achievement, and you know, gratitude that I'm that person for you know many people and for, for yourself, for yourself included. That means means a lot to me. Like, um, and I, I. I'm lost for words, mate. I think I appreciate appreciate you saying that. That's. I'm going to change the tone now because I know you weren't always that person. You were a wee mental Davy at one point. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we really show the distance travelled, and this is why that sentiment really rings true. You weren't always that guy. Fighting was your currency. Let me know about the most violent version of Davy back when you were younger. What did life look like before you were on this transformative journey? So as a as I started becoming an adult, 16, 17, 18, I, I'll, I'll just, I'll just tell it in the, the, the story and the, the kind of order that things happened. I ended up, I'll just go through it and the kind of how I got charged. I got charged with a serious assault when I was like 18. Got in a fight with a bus driver. It wasn't like I jumped on the bus and started attacking him, right? I was I was drunk and I was out of line and I was falling asleep in the bus and I was I was just in a bad state. And I was I was with a couple of pals, I was with my girlfriend, my pal at the time. Get on, we'd been steaming, we'd been drinking vodka straight and McDonald's, like <laughs> absolute clowns. <laughs> like literally like bottle of vodka on the table, like drink that. And no regards for perception, anybody else's perception of us just drinking it straight out of the bottle, bottle having a laugh. Nobody would even say it because this was in the middle of the city centre. And <laughs> and we just thought that was fun and acceptable. And then we got on this, this bus. And yeah, I pissed in the bus and I fell asleep. And then the bus driver's like, somebody's pissing the bus, fell asleep. But my girlfriend and my pal at the time were, were giving everybody abuse on the bus. Like, and I was, I said to him, I was like, listen, guys, I was like, leave it out and stop talking to people like that. I wasn't, wasn't happy with their conduct, despite the fact that I'd pissed in the bus and fell asleep. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was all right. <laughs> stop doing that. And then I'm pissing in the bus. And um, in all fairness, I was busting. So when you need to go, you need to go. Right. But no, I shouldn't have done that. I really shouldn't have. I shouldn't have done that. The bus driver, like, clocks me, comes up, starts flinging me about. And at that point, he put his, put his hands on me. I mean, him start rolling about. And then uh, he's punching me, I'm punching him. And then um, there was a bag with the, the vodka bottle on it. And I can't remember if it was me or the other guy that had that. And it swung and it smashed off one of the, um, one of the poles on the bus. And it ended up, the guy, the guy grabs me and tries to pull me, or he was trying to pull me into his, um, and he's, he's driving seat. Dad, my dad, my dad was a bus driver back in the day as well. So, um, like in a, in a weird turn of events, and ends up we are fighting. I'm punching him in the face. Um, he's punching me. It's, it's, it's a fight, right? Like, and ends up we get out and we we get the jail. We we get the jail and got to court and plead guilty to it. And the lawyer says to me, oh, here's the deal. You never pissed in the bus. 
So you never piss in the bus. You just need to admit that you attacked him unprovoked and you'll get community service. And I'm like young, 18, like, and what, I, I, I didn't sit right with me. I was like, I, no, I want to plead not guilty. Like he put his hands on me first. I are pissed in the bus and he's like, no, this is the deal. So it ends up, I pled guilty to my lawyer's advice. And that was my first kind of situation with law. It left a bad taste in my mouth because it wasn't honest. That was the deal. So it ended up, I got done with serious assault. And I think that was like, the guy had like a broken jaw and stuff like that. Um, that wasn't my intention. Uh, although I shouldn't have been in that situation. Ideally, I shouldn't have assaulted him. I shouldn't have pissed in the bus. I shouldn't have been drinking vodka at McDonald's. I shouldn't have been with the people I was with. And ultimately as well, with the, percept the people on the bus perception of me, like my pal and my girlfriend at the time were giving them dogs abuse. And they've ultimately just like been like, they've got a bad picture painted to me already and then they see me wrong about it. So those witnesses and all that. So that's how that turned out. And I got community service. At that point I became homeless and through choice. A lot of people say that people People don't choose to be homeless. I chose to be homeless. Why? Um, to be honest with you, my mum, my mum's behaviour around about drink and her attitude when she was drinking was very destructive. And uh, she was dealing with her own issues. And I couldn't live in that environment as an adult. So I had the choice to, to not live there. Um, became very volatile and quite abusive. And I went in a homeless unit. And... There, I met, I was linked to people from different parts of the city. It was actually like a, an adult's children's home. It was like, it was ran by the the Scottish children's home. And it was all people who have been like off the back of charges and stuff like that. And they'd show you how to like cook and stuff like that. And it was managed. It was kind of like a, a very minimal security prison for young people. And it was dressed up as this kind of like nice kind of well-to-do thing. But it was like, so... I, there was a boy there from the East End and a girl there uh, who um, I later got in a relationship with. Um, she, uh, so they two were together at the time. And then I met them and we're like, right, cool. When we'll get one night, we'll get a drink. So we get a drink and then they go, by the way, oh, I've got a pal. I've got a pal that, um, can drive us to like Springburn or something like that, so we could go and get like hash. Or so I was like, ha I was like, I it was like council hash, and uh, so we're driving. We're we're um, we get in this car, right? We're getting this car with this guy. I don't know him. Gets in. He's he's good, but older than us and stuff. And I noticed like in the the middle tray where the the handbrake is, there's this like wee Swiss Army pen knife. So he starts driving and then he goes, oh, I'm on class A drugs. And I'm like, I'm sitting in the back and I'm like, oh, who is this guy? This is, this is dodgy. So ends up, we're driving down Maryhill Road and he starts swaying. So he's, he's out, he's feeling, he's feeling conscious. I think it's like heroin or something like that, some kind of like um, sedative he'd been taking. So he starts swaying on the wrong side of the road and there's a bus coming towards us. And there was a girl in the front and she pulls the steering wheel. She pulls the steering wheel and then the, the car runs off the road and crashes into a fence. So 
out of panic, I grabbed the knife, right? And actually, my, my, my ex-girlfriend was there at the time. No, goodness, this other girl who I got with later. And we we just decided to start walking home. We're all kind of like shocked and, and shooken up, right? Sobered up and all that. We had a few beers, right? But we weren't steaming or anything like that. Started sobering up. Nearly died, do you know what I mean? Nearly went ahead on collision my bus. And then <laughs> this car this car drives by and it's like a, like a, a team of like girls and guys in it. I think it was just mostly girls, right? So they're all out the, the, the window waving. And my girlfriend at times, like, <laughs> she's like, are you looking at them? And I was like, you know, we had one of their relationships, right? And, and the both of us were dead young and been through a lot and she had as well. And we got in an argument. So we're in an argument in the middle of the street. And then somebody phones a police, right? Because she cracked us. And um, ends up police show up. Like, got you got anything on you? And I had this in my sock, right? So I went, I've got, I've got this pen knife in my, in my socks. He pulls it out, puts the handcuffs on me, jail. Done my knife, right? But we, it was a wee Swiss army knife, right? I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have had it anyway, right? And so I get done with that. And then I try to, you know, through this time, like I'm, I'm, I'm always, I, I, I know there's more in life. I know there's more to it. Like I'm trying to get myself out of this situation. And I want to have pals. And I'm I'm linking up with people and it just ends up like you're, you're so submerged in it. Like you go from one thing to another to a worse situation. And then so following on for that, I mean, I was get I was getting in fight like Glasgow's early two thousands, right? Stab capital and murder capital of Europe, right? Like what growing up, see see by the time I was twenty three, I'd lost like seventeen or eighteen pals, dead, like either drowning. Drank, drugs, getting run over, like car crashes, both, like, like that's like war statistics. Getting stabbed, murdered, you know what I mean? Like th these things were like just like normal to us. And so, but by that point, like, I've been going out up the dancing, up nightclubs, stuff like that. And I'm just getting in, in scraps all the time. Like talk, I'm talking about like sometimes, my problem was I would take on anybody. So I had like, one night I had like seven guys attack me with knives and all that. And like, I knocked Mester them out. Like I knocked Mester, and it was, it was a targeted attack. Targeted, they, they didn't know who we were. They were just targeting somebody for the sake of targeting somebody. They didn't know who I was. And didn't know who my, who my pal was. I mean, him were always out in kind of nightclubs and stuff like that. And uh, I remember like, like that was happening on the regular and my pals knew I could fight people knew that I could I could fight like I could handle myself and one thing I will say is like I I never intended ever to start a fight I didn't like starting fights but I wouldn't back down like for anybody I would take on like 10 20 30 guys like and I just had that mentality and violence started to gravitate towards you because of that because violence became your currency and you had so much of this mm. currency it seemed like you attracted violence and your social status increased because of how violent you were. Absolutely. And people would then see me as almost, and we seen each other as like, as a hierarchy, as one to take down. And, you know, by that point, the people started to find out these things about me. And it was kind of like, oh, who do you think he is? And stuff like that. And that then led me to, 
when I got stabbed. And that was like, that was really tough. Like, because the, the guy who had mentioned, a, f a friend of mine who had been involved in me with these, these situations and the, the situations with both of our participation, like he'd phoned me one night and uh, he says, oh, you know, all these guys are in, in my house. You know, I don't know what to do. Can you come up and help me? Stuff like that. And I was like, and he knew I would go and get him. He knew I would do it. He knew because I'd done it before. That night with the guys, the, the seven of them attacked me with blades and all that. Like, and I'd, I'd knocked Mester him out. Like, I'd done that because he ran away, fell, and then fell unconscious. Um, which happened a few times. He'd, he'd run away for a fight and then he would fall unconscious on, on the street. Loyalty was one of your biggest values and traits. Absolutely. And I was very loyal to my, my friend and he knew that I would, I would come to to support him. So first thing I do is get a taxi and I, I go to his house, his house, about 18 at a time. And I got in and there's about eight guys that I know all of them, right? We went to school and all that together, right? And some of these guys had it tough, man. Like, honestly, like now you're, now we're talking about like, like there's been tough aspects in my life, tough aspects of your life. These guys had it tough, like, real tough and at, at that point like i was trying like i had a job getting back into martial arts training um i had a girlfriend over the, the relationship wasn't wasn't perfect far from it but you know i was i was making steps towards trying to get out of this this lifestyle and you know i i i don't think it was well received in fact it wasn't well received so Maybe a bit of jealousy, maybe. All right, wouldn't it surprise me? Okay, I can't tell what other people are thinking, but that's my perception of it. So I get a phone call up to the house. I get into the living room and all of them are there, right? So they're all like taking eckies, smoking weed, drinking, stuff like that, right? All the kind of stuff that I used to do. I'm trying to break away from this. I'm no one I'm no one to be involved in, in this anymore, right? So actually everything seems pretty chill. But I noticed, like, it was before cell phones and stuff like that, there was, you had a landline. It was a small living room. And I'm like, how can he phone me crying, saying that they're all going to kill me and stuff like that? How can he phone me they're crying on the phone without them knowing? And I was like, something's not right here. But I still wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, oh, do you want an egg and stuff? I was like, no, I don't want one. Like, do you want a bucket or do you want a, like, a joint? I was like, no, nah, I'm all good. But I had a beer. I brought my own beer. So it ends up, I'm like, yeah, I say to him, listen, mate, we, we better get out of here. Just leave them in the, your house. Let them trash the house. Right? Just let them trash it. I was like, I mean, we'll just go. You can come with me. So we did that. We start walking out the living room door. And right before I got to close the living room door, one of them gives me the finger. And I just hear them all charging down the hallway. So I'm holding the door shut. So I'm, I'm holding the door shut. And there's like seven of them obviously pulling on it. Me and my mate who had phoned me to come get there. I was outside. He's there. I'm like, hold the door. But he's just watching me. So I like, they, they just they just overpowered me. They all spill it onto the, the close. Which for those of you who don't know, it's a landing with like kind of stairs and stuff like that. Um, and I'm just fighting these seven guys, right? But that's just dead up close and intimate. But these other guys used to fight, they didn't know me, right? These guys knew me for being a child and stuff like that. So 
Um, they they didn't maybe have the I didn't have the psychological advantage that I maybe had with other guys. Do you know what I mean? Like so 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 it was it was up close and personal, and then they're on drugs and stuff like that as well. So I'm I'm like I'm smashing one of them in the face and just nothing's happening, right? And they're they're bouncing buckfast bottles off off my head, like so ends up. I get a cut. I've got a scar here and a scar there, right? So, so I'm I'm bleeding, right? Now I know through my participation in combat sports and watching like UFC and stuff like that. I know if the blood gets into my eyes, like I'm gonna be blinded, right? So that's one thing that can stop a fight. I was I was very kind of like in and out of it, wasn't I? Like like the way the way I'm just now, or the the the, career, or the um, dedication I had to my career. So ends up. I, I know our time is limited. I run down the stairs. This other guy's coming in through the door. Uh, one of one of their pals, I lamp him, drop him, and then I'm I'm running, and I realise I'm running towards a road, and and at this point I'm like I'm like I'm blinded now. Like I either run blind onto the road, or I turn around and I fight these guys blind. I either run blind, I fight blind. I fight blind. I'll fight blind. We turn around. I'm I'm fighting them. And obviously, can I see? I'm done in the deck, so I'm getting hit with bucket bottles, getting smashed, getting my head kicked in. And then before you know it, the, the the top guy, the most violent guy, he was the the richest in terms of violence. He smashes a bottle and just starts screaming at like in the neck and the head and all that, like in the hip. I get stabbed six times. I managed to wipe the blood in my eyes. I seen an opening and I ran across the road. The one place I ran was the, the boy that phoned me around at his mum's house because it's the only place I knew that I could go that was that was safe. It was just pure instinct. And I remember lying on her living room floor and it was just wall to wall in blood. Like the whole the whole place was just saturated blood like coming at my neck and all that in my head. Ambulance comes. And he watched us, so he he just he sat like didn't intervene and like just watched it. Like and you know went to hospital I they stapled me so it's just a staple gun just back of the head like 30 sta staples just a, like just imagine somebody just going at your head with a staple gun just giving it loud that's what it was like no painkillers either no just straight in staple um, stitched stitched up here and here and then I was getting tested by a neurosurgeon and the neurosurgeon had said if it uh, a couple of millimetres one way it would hit my main artery which would just kill me outright a couple of millimetres other way it would have left me paralysed from the nerve down because down, it had actually partially, partially severed a nerve but they're going to need to operate on my neck because um, there's nerve damage there's a partially severed nerve and if the nerve becomes fully severed then I'll be in, in proper um, a proper situation basically um, so in the operating theatre for 14 hours, not eight, 18 hours, right? That's the amazing work that the, that neurosurgeon done. If he's listening today, thank you so much for um, saving my life and, and giving me that quality of life. And, you know, woke up the next day, it was Mother's Day, my mum was there, girlfriend time, my dad, my niece, uh, I think my sister was there as well. And uh, I thought I'd drain in my neck and stuff like that. So I was in my bed for like three months with this drain in my neck and I was like it was all like I couldn't I couldn't move it because they'd, they'd done the operation and I was just sitting in my room with my own mind like the CID came out and 
they just said, oh, this was a gangland thing, wasn't it? Like, and I was like, I just, I don't know what I said. I was scared. I was scared, like, those repercussions. Very vulnerable situation. I do know that that was a low category um, and, and the, and the police system, it's a, it's a low category kind of, like, investigation. They call it shit on shit. That's what it's called, right? So shit on shit is just, like, they call gangland stuff. Kind of deserved that. Because that the nature of where it took place, who was involved. Absolutely. Then put if that was in a affluent area, it would be a high case. Yeah. But because it was in Yoker, Drumchapel, Milgai area, mm-hmm. it was deemed less important. Yeah, I was in Yoker, so it was like for them, it was just like uh, just a gangland thing. So they kind of deserve that. Um, that was my home. Do you know what I mean? Like that was my pals. Like that was you know granted. Like I wasn't like best behavior either. Like but like I still got stabbed. Like still try to kill me. It was a murder attempt to try to kill. They try to kill me. It's traumatic. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, like I'm not that bothered about it. I don't hold that against. Like that that like there's most of the police I know are, are, are decent guys. Do you know what I mean? And girls as well. One of my one of my good pals. She's she's a, a amazing post. And you know, it's just it's just a system. It's the way it is, and that that is the way it is. But and it ended up like I decided that I really wanted to to dedicate my life to fighting. I wanted to become a UFC fighter. I wanted to become a professional MMA fighter. I wanted to travel the world. And to be honest with you, I wanted to get revenge on the guys. Like I planned that, I plotted that, I trained myself and I decided it was never going to happen again. That's never going to happen to me again. I decided that I also want to improve myself and become something different, somebody different. I also knew that I couldn't put myself in those situations with people like that because it really was life or death. I had to change the, the the people that I surrounded myself by. I was very angry, and that you know that 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 violent streak, if you call it that, that that side of me, like that is a fire lit. But I knew I had to channel that somewhere. I knew that wasn't that shit that didn't that couldn't live in the streets. So yeah, I had all that going on, and obviously, like you know, there was a lot of trauma. And then shortly after that. As I'm still recovering, uh, I'm out one night again with my pal, and then this other guy starts on us, and he knew me, so I was I was nineteen at the time, right? So I said shortly after this is this has happened, right? So this this was like I just started kind of going out and start. And to be honest with you, I went out. I didn't go looking for trouble or anything like that. I was I, I went out like I went out to party and stuff, and and meet new people and socialize. Like I really liked. I'm a very sociable person always been like that and uh in glasgow at the time it just turned was a dodgy place very dangerous and this guy goes for me right and i found out later that he knew me so me and him end up fighting uh, and like we are scrapping for like it felt like 20 minutes right it, it might have been half of that but even if it was 10 minutes like fights don't last that long like they just don't like a fight's like two minutes and it feels longer than what it is. I had witnesses and stuff like that. They said the same. So me and him are, are, are scrapping. And I remember, and I think, like, why is this going on so long? This this isn't supposed to happen. And just as I'm thinking that, I throw a punch and he's, he's, his nose bursts open, which I later found out it was broken. And then he, he hurt his arm and he grabbed his pal, flung his pal in front of me. He's like, your cards are marked, mate. I'm going to get you going to get you and this kind of stuff and I was like that like that's fine 
I later found out he was a good bit older than me. And I later found out that he was serious and he was planning on targeting me. And this wasn't just a one-off. So I was pretty scared. I was pretty scared. Do you know what I mean? I was pretty scared having all his pals and all that. They're a good bit older. Could have been 10 years older. I've got cars and all that. Like, I was quite amateur for me as well, as you can probably tell. <laughs> um, you know, so, and I'm still dealing with other, other stuff as well. And people are sending messages like, this guy's coming after you. He's going to kill you and stuff like that. And um, he took a big social hit as well. Do you know what I mean? He talking about violence as currency. Like, he uh, became bankrupt almost. Aye, uh, absolutely. He was, he was rock bottom. This wee guy that nobody knows he's just walked up and started smacking the boots like basically broke his nose and his arm so what happened next so i noticed like there was guys driving about like maintaining eye contact like following me stuff like that or at least i, I was seeing it that way and then one night i'm walking into the shop i'm i'm with my niece she was only like five or six at the time right she loved us on and off and i'd later adopted her for us for a period of life for a, for a good couple of years and saved my parents and stuff um, but she was, she was dead young and I'd say to her, I was like, we're walking into shops and these three guys approached me. And I was like, you better, you better go into, better go home quick. I go around, she goes home. The three guys gave me an absolute bleaching, um, kicked my head in. Um, for some reason, I don't know why, I didn't fight back. I, I don't know, I don't know what happened, right? I didn't fight back. I was in a different mentality or something. I, I think maybe it's because my niece was there, right? I just hadn't like switched into that that mode as such. I was like, and then, and then maybe it's something to do with being stabbed or something. I don't know. And ended up, I just went. I've had enough of this. Like, so I went in the house. My dad had an ornamental samurai sword. And before you know it, well, out in the street with samurai sword. And um, a big one. It's like it's like that size, right? It's it was a pure belter, right? <laughs> it was huge. Wasn't right? to cut butter with, no. Was no, it wasn't. For, it wasn't. It wasn't for that. And you know, so, so I'm I'm swinging this about police or police helicopters. My dad's in the street. I get to my dad, my my boss at the time, who was my uh, who my guy who obviously employed me. He's like David in the house, so he pulls me into the house. It's like. Police motors everywhere, everybody's out in the street. Like, I'm jumping the backs, crawling through bushes and all that. Don't want to get caught. In all fairness, my, my parents and all that, like I say, loyal as as can be, backing me up. Like, police are up at the door. <laughs> it was wild. And then I just, I've just went like that. This is that. I was like, see all the guys. I was like, I'm going to track them all down. So I, I had like blonde spiky hair at the time. So I shaved it off. So I couldn't get identified, and because you were wanted by the police, right? Aye. So I was I was on the run for about three months, and then like I targeted each one of the guys. So like I got them one by one because obviously they got me in a group, and obviously I pulled out the samurai sword as well. So it ends up I'm walking down to the the, the shop, my wee cousin, and I caught the freedom, and I was like, "Ah, right, jump the taxi up the road." I got into the Chinese takeaway and I say, can I have a chicken noodle soup? You give me a chicken noodle soup and I just walk it and just go that right off her face. Like, uh, then later I'll get them one by one. So like I, I got up to one of them 
and uh, I found out where he was, got started talking to him, threatened him, just says, listen, is this it? Guy starts crying and he's like, listen, it wasn't me, it was all this other guy. So then I move on to the other guy and he was, uh, he was working, he was working, delivering uh, kebabs or something like that. So I jump in the, the kebab place, jump up on the counter and all that and like start threatening him. I knew the guy who owned the place. He's like, it wasn't me, it was all the other guy. So they're all kind of blaming each other. And then move on to the other guy and same thing. Like, so they, they all kind of like backed right down. And that was that. I was like, right, cool. Sorted. Like that, that's it, sorted. Got your revenge. I, I don't think it was more, it wasn't so much like for revenge for me. I, I think I was trying to control the situation. I think like what I was trying to do was neutralize the threat. Um, Cause I actually didn't like hurt any of them apart for the, the suit pang and even that was flexing, right? You know, I didn't like actually follow through with a lot of stuff. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't have, I don't know. Like if I was pushed enough, like I obviously could have. I found that I was trying to neutralize the situation. I was trying to neutralize the threat. And actually, I was very effective at it. Very effective. I knew what I was doing when I was doing it. I had such clarity, I thought. But in the wrong way. And I realized then, I was like, how can, how can I do this? Like, how, how do I know how to do this? And it did, like, but then it moved up. It just... I was like, who's a, who's bigger and badder next? next you couldn't one. stop it if you tried. That's kind of trajectory you're on. No. No, I was gathering momentum. Yeah. It was like, so they're like, right, let's not mess with him. Before I know what I'm looking around, like everybody's scared of me, right? Like, like, and I didn't know this at the time. I was like, I was scared. Like, I was scared. Like, and then before you know it, I'm, I'm out in the street again and something else has kicked off. And I'm having a sword fight with a guy with a machete. Do you know what I mean? Like we are, we are like swinging machetes at each other. He's driving on the pavement, trying to run me over. Like, aye. And then, so this guy, this guy was serious, man. He was. He a lot of these guys have been done for like murder, attempted murder, and stuff like that as well. So he, this wasn't he just like just flexing. Like I knew these guys had done time for stuff like that. And I. I I was so submerged in it. I was so hyper focused on this that I, I only felt like I only knew one way, and that was to be more violent, be more scary. Is that what led to the firearm? Yep. So I ended up. I found myself in a situation. A guy's driving about in a stola, pulls up, points a shotgun at my face, and he's he's just flexing right, showing after there's girls and all that there, and I'm like. With this particular guy, he was flexing. So he's like, got a gun at my face. And I'm like, ah, listen, mate, I'll, I'll take it off you and I'll put it where the sun don't shine. And um, I remember at the time, I actually found it quite funny. And that just shows you the mental state that I was in. I didn't care at that point. And then there was this other guy who, was, who actually wasn't related to that incident who was going to shoot me. So ends up, I... Walking down the street, get done with the police again. The police are now targeting me, right? They they know who I am. Um, I've been done for stuff before. Uh, and they they jail me. They find this this firearm on me. 
and this is that like you can, you can see a sequence it's like assault knife samurai sword firearm right that's like and the people are getting bigger and i'm matching it every time right so at this point i'm probably about 20 right and i'm like right i need, I need to get out of this like i need to but then my my partner at the time she became pregnant um and roughly when i was about 21 22 22 21 22 and at that point i knew things had to change the firearms charge was still up i was still up for it and that firearms charge was a breach of probation done community service and all that all these kind of things which led to even worse situations again but i I've got this firearms charge hanging over me and now I have a son on the way. And I'm going up to court. Breach of probation for other, uh, other, other weapons and stuff that I've been found with. And my ex at the time, she's, she's about eight months pregnant, right? She's just about to give birth. And at that point, I'd actually had a decent job. I was like a photographer and all that. Like I built myself up to management in the studio, became the area trainer for uh, Scotland and the North England. Like I was, I was, I was trained and nobody knew that stuff about me. Like then, like I'd like, I'd, I'd had it well, like, you know what I mean? And there's people who backed me as well. They probably knew it to an extent, but they, they, they backed me because they, they, and I'm thankful for those opportunities. And ends up sitting in court. This judge is in an absolute stinking mood. Like he's jailing. I'm talking custodial sentences. Like put, put a guy in jail for two years for smashing a car window. Right? It was a breach of probation for something else. Two years custodial sentence. That just basically means you're in the big jail and you're not getting it for two years. Um, it's just he's jailing. I've, I've never seen so many people get jailed in my life. Right? And I'm the last person that day, and my lawyer doesn't show up. See, so he, he doesn't show up. Right? He he was. He was half arsing at this guy anyway. Do you know what I mean? He was just in it for the legal aid and then just like, ah, whatever. Tell me what I wanted to hear and then it was change the story last minute. This is the deal we're cutting. He's like, oh, it's not guilty and all that. And then the show up, like, I just plead guilty. So I plead guilty to it to try and get a reduced sentence. I was like, a seven year sentence for possession of a firearm. Off what, the what was a firearm? Um, so it was a, it was a flare. It was like a, a something to deploy a flare, right? And I had like a serial number and all that on it. It was like a militarized weapon, right? And, you know, they, they, they pull it out. So I got up in front of the court and I'm like, I'm like, in my head, I'm going down seven years. So the prosecutor's like, this is a, this is a firearm. It's got a serial number on it. It's registered military weapon. All these kind of things. And then the sheriff says, well, what is it about that that makes it a firearm? And she's like, well, it's got a trigger mechanism. You you pull the trigger and it deploys a flare. And I was like, oh, okay, where's the flare? I was like, we don't have the flare. But we have the, the actual thing that deploys a flare. And it's a registered firearm. Like, there's no way of getting around about it. And he looks at her and he goes, what's his pen? He says, but my pen's got a spring in it. And I'm just like, what is happening here? Like, my lawyer's not showed up. Like, this guy's like, my pen's got a spring. And I'm like, what's happening I know, but this is a serial number on it's registered firearm. Like there's there's no like like a makeshift thing. He's like, stop wasting my time. Get him out of here, case admonished. And this was like the last session of the day. And I was like, I says, what does that mean? He says, it means you need to get out. And I was like, but that that like 
community service, probation, and like that. So, no, it, it'll go down in your record, but it, it's basically, and it's so surreal every time I tell it, and every time I think about it, like, I don't know if he's what he got up the road that day for his dinner, maybe he's, 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 he's done wrong. That was a miracle to me. Like, that won the lottery. Me, I won the lottery that day, and so did my son as well. And because I was looking to miss in the first seven years of his life, and I've never been in trouble since. <laughs> since my son, I was 23 at the time, and that's when I became a pro MMA fighter. Um, and actually, for the last kind of couple of years, that was one of the reasons why I was kind of like struggling a wee bit to get back on the, the straight and narrows because I was told I'd never fight again. I got my wrist broken, a, a polis battered me one night as well and put, uh, broke my wrist basically so I'd been out of the game for two years as well and then um, started fighting professionally my son was born and like like I say I, I just started building a more positive future for myself and granted you know nothing was was plain sailing since then but like I'd done what I, I started setting out to do and that was to become a professional MMA fighter travel the world went on to Addition for the UFC in front of Dana White in uh, Vegas. I was training with Vanderlei Silva in Vanderlei Silva's gym. Like I realized, like he was the guy that inspired me to get into it, watching him fight. Trained in Thailand, fought on TV. Um, you know, became number one in Scotland. Um, number number one lightweight, and I became I was ranked like top twenty seven in the UK, and at one point I was like top. 57 lightweight in the world <laughs> like and i know that's mad to think about just now and like there's, there's thousands of fighters now it was it wasn't as deep a pool as well yes he wasn't and, that big at the time yeah either. um but like i i was i was up there on those those, those rankings and i was being recognized as one of the top guys and yes he just wasn't kicking about that time if you're scott there was no scottish guys in the UFC at that time it just you, you just didn't get into the UFC. so um and when I did retire, it was uh, when I did retire. That's when the guys started getting in. But that was that was the right decision for me at the time as well, was to pursue a new life and make new life what it is today. Going back to my earliest sentiment about, I wanted to create this podcast or develop this episode to show distance travelled. That episode of David that we went into for the last twenty minutes is a very different person to the the opener that we had, the intimate discussion where I reflected on how you're a father figure to so many. You are the monkey on a unicycle with the symbols. Like, they're two very different people. And it just shows you the stroke of luck, like a sliding door moment, a crossroads in your life. Just change your life forever. And look at the impact that you've had on so many people because of that one streak of luck, almost. Your life would have went a completely different way. You'd have been in jail, you'd have been dead. And just because of this sliding door moment, you've had such a profound impact on myself, Keegan, the, the, the fight team, your, your missus, and ultimately your son. Um, one of the stories I want to share on the podcast I know you've had 17 pro fights you've had all these highlights those rankings I want to talk about the Bobby McVitie trilogy quickly what does Bobby McVitie mean to you? where does that stem from? Bobby Bobby I feel it's almost like part of me like we I I hated Bobby that much that I just wanted to, to fight him all the time, right? And I think when I seen Bobby, I seen parts of myself that I didn't like. I seen somebody who I thought was cocky, arrogant, and, you know, 
maybe just cocky and arrogant. Yeah, like that, and that was probably that was said to me that that probably I I couldn't see in myself. I always um, think all forms of hatred are self hatred mm. to some degree. When you dislike someone or call people certain mm. traits like that, I often find it's a reflection of myself when I've done that. Mm. I've checked myself on that uh, in the past, and perhaps maybe that's what you were projecting then. I, I think it was. I think it was, and like, but Bobby hated me as well. Like <laughs> he, 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 we didn't like each other. Both of us were top ranked in the country. And we wanted it all to ourselves and we couldn't coexist without fighting each other. Uh, but I feel like Bobby helped me get over a lot of that. Like he helped me through that journey. Like he helped get me through the stuff that I was getting through and hopefully I helped him. But just now, but Bobby means for me is I really like Bobby. I think he's a great guy. Every time I see him, we, we cuddle and start crying about the old days. Like, <laughs> but we've had a lot of stuff happen in our life and we can reflect on that. The both of us were young guys going for the same thing. Same as all the other guys as well. See all these guys I was rolling about with samurai swords and that they were going through the same stuff I was going through. We were all in that together. Do you know what I mean? I, I, you had no choice. Nah, I, I, like, you see them sometimes and it's like, man, it's, it's all done now. Like, we're different people. Like, if, if we could look back and have a word with ourselves, we would. Like, they're all right. Like, we'll just try to figure it out. And like I say, like, we figured out through violence. And it was no, the only difference with Bobby was is that it got televised and we got paid for it and we got in the newspapers for it and people celebrated it. And it was a consensual outlet where we all consented and it was in a cage and nobody else outside that would get hurt. I loved fighting Bobby. I loved it. Like, see him thinking about it just now. Like, I'm not saying that I'd want to fight Bobby, right? Because I, I like him too much. Like it's different times now, but I was processing all that trauma as well. Like I was, I was getting through that, and I was reliving a lot of it. But I was, I was mapping it out. I was, I was, I was getting through it, and I just want to say thanks to Bobby for everything he's done for me. Like stepping in the cage and and, and battling it out with me because I loved that every every second. Even even they beat me, I loved to hate him. I mm. loved to to sit and think about how I was going to beat him, like plotting and stuff like that. Like and. He made he helped me make me the person I am today, which is a better version of myself. And uh, he helped sharpen my tools in, in the right way. And I hopefully me and Bobby can catch up soon and maybe get a roll together. And like I don't mean our own sausage, I mean like roll a bit of the deck together. And uh, but I love catching up with Bobby now. He's such a great guy. He's a lovely guy. And here's a surprise. He's just here just now. No, <laughs> One of the things that really stands out about that trilogy fight that I remember hearing about you, this is before the psychological warfare that's kind of shown in the UFC mm. with Conor McGregor's mental tactics, mm. some of the stuff that you teach now with mental performance. There was a social media stunt in one of your fights that I want you to touch on. If that's okay. I think it's a brilliant story. Well, I think it was the third... There's, there's a few social media stunts. Um, one of the, the well, the, I think you know what one I'm talking about. <laughs> well, um, I don't, there, were, there were a lot of good ones. I think one, the one that that, that sticks it to me was it the one where I led him to believe that I was weaker than what I was. You were yeah. showcasing online that you were doing something different to what yeah. you actually were doing. So basically, uh, I Bobby. Bobby was led to believe that I was underestimating him, that I was at partying, messing about, drinking every night, you know, like he was led to believe that I was taking my foot off the gas and not taking him seriously. When in fact, I was actually in Thailand training with some of the world's best fighters. 
<laughs> Russians, Americans, Thais. Like, man, like, I might as well have had, like, one of the wheels and an axe, like, sharpening it with a picture of his, his face on it. Like, I was plotting, like, and, man, like, I had a cracked rib in training. I was running up mountains in Phuket, like, trying to, try to break the world records and all that. Like, genuinely, I gave myself a heart attack running up this mountain. And, like, I was just so focused on beating him. And I found out, like, and Bobby told me, Sal, and actually, eh, uh, he he told me he was underestimating me. He, was, he, he wasn't taking the, the camp series at all. So I was slacking off, and then right before we fought, I just I just came clean. I think I released an article in the Herald, and I went, "He thinks I've been messing about. Like I've not been. I've been in Thailand." So I gave him a full sense of security, and then like two days before the fight, I took it away from him, and it was a proper mental welfare game. And then I stepped stepped into the cage room. It was I felt it. I could I could feel it. I could feel it. Um but like but again like and I like I feel like Bobby retired after that fight and he said he was gonna retire if he fought me and, and it's you live by the sword, you die by the sword and unfortunately, you know, Bobby did retire after that and you know, I think that he he regrets that. Like he does regret it. And I'm truly sorry for that. Do you know what I mean? Like, when I come at this perspective now, I'm truly sorry because he had so much, like, more to do. And I hope he f fulfills that, whatever it is like, he wants to do to fulfill that part of his life. Um, but, like, he would have done the same to me easy. Yeah. Like, he would he would, he would, have done that to me, no problem. I've heard you described as the gatekeeper to MMA. People <laughs> either retired or went to the UFC after fighting you. <laughs> Absolutely. that's That has happened. That has happened. So that psychological warfare and those mental tactics and the mental tactics that you use personally to go into mm. the cage, it's something that you're really enamored by now. It's your, I believe, I'm led to believe you're one of your core fascinations and mm. where you spend most of your time with M23 mental performance and mastering the art of. Talk to me about those two businesses, what they are and what you do there. So I would say it's a lot more, lot more well-informed now, a, a lot less like that kind of style like with the deceptive that was very deceptive and stuff like that. But that was that was like the art of war. Like that was battle. The the stuff that I do now, the kind of mental performance side of it is I would say in a more positive sense and helping getting the the best out of people's potential. Like getting the best out of people, like helping them unearth their their talents, helping them turn difficult situations into positive ones, helping give them the mental tools that they need to navigate through either rough terrain or thrive. And that can come in many different forms. But it all comes down to training. That's what it all comes down to. Mental performance training, mindfulness, training aspects of focus, confidence, you know, um, psychology. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a, a counsellor. I'm not a, a qualified psychologist or anything like that. And that's like when I know my lane, I don't, I don't go down trauma routes. It's more, it's, it's not like, let's talk about trauma. And, and those conversations can be on the table. If anybody ever wanted to talk to me and open up to me, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I can be that guy. But I don't probe for it. I don't go looking for it. I help give people the tools they need to overcome adversity or to thrive and make things easier. So it's kind of like, in a fight, learning how to throw the most effective combinations. Like, 
punch, a kick, a slip, a knee, an elbow. It's 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 kind as a metaphor. It's it's kind of like that. You so, refer to the tools and skills as like ingredients. Absolutely, like. absolutely. It's um, the way I like to explain it. It's like you see Batman and he's got his belt and he's got all his wee his wee tricks and his wee tools and he deploys them. Like it's very proactive, isn't it? Like he's never really reactive. And then even when he is, he's still proactive. When you get these mental tools, like you can deploy them in these situations, and and mine's have been battle tested because. Your opponents will try and gaslight you. They'll try and manipulate you. They'll try and deceive you. Like, and it doesn't mean you need to do that. Like, I, I don't, I, what happens in MMA is different to what happens out in the street. All right. I would never use any in that way, like ever. And I would never encourage anybody to do it. I would always want anything, a coach to be used for good, for positive reinforcement. To help develop people, to help make them better. And the way that I used it, for me to change myself, to overcome the trauma that I went through, to overcome the violent tendencies, to overcome the my behavior, to modify behavior, to, to be more effective. And David, I'm going to hold my hands up. People that follow me on Instagram have seen me down your gym every Sunday morning with Keegan, mm -hmm. doing a mental performance class. We've had one-to-ones, and I've been using some of the tools as part of my everyday uh, for positive good. Right. For example, doing public speaking, I'm using this technique wow. where you show me to hold my thumb, visualize like a motivating bar, like a, an energy bar mm -hmm. or like a battery yep. and to turn that on and turn that up. Yep. I've seen myself in bathrooms and skyscrapers about to give a talk, listen to music, visualizing this kind of knob that I'm turning up, not my knob, <laughs> a knob <laughs> that I'm turning up, like turning up the volume. Um, uh, the aspect of archetypes as well, mirroring people that you find mm. um, in a style that you want to perform mm. like, whether it's, for me, I use it in mm. stand-up comedy. Um, I was on one of my good friend and friend of the studio, Darren Connell's uh, gig recently, and you asked me, what comedians do you admire? And I said, well, I actually admire Darren's style. Mm -hmm. he's, he's very vulnerable and, and playful up there. So mm -hmm. we did a session together where I was being vulnerable and playful, playful practicing that exact set. And it just shows you the versatility of, of those skills. And, and practically, I've been using them. Um, this morning, we had a session together, Keegan as well, who's in the studio today. We were priming ourselves for this podcast and look how well it's turned out so far. Absolutely, and like hearing, you know, your stories, Keegan's stories, and anybody that that, that goes out and 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 does it, like I'm just, I just like that's a that's like a moment for me. I, I feel a pride as a as a coach or a mentor, if you want to call 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 me a mentor, or you know, and that is where I, I feel a lot of pride when someone trusts me to go out and implement that in high stakes situations in their life, like. Going out and putting yourself in front of people, like are they, are they going to laugh? Are they going to reject you? Like, are they going to um, are they going to respect you? And that takes a lot of trust. That's like if I'm putting somebody into the cage to fight, there's a trust there. There's a big trust, and you know, one mistake and that trust can be compromised. It's you know, and I, I, I it's, like you say, the, the versatility of it is something that I'm really intrigued by. Is like anyone that has a mind, which is everyone can utilize this stuff and one of the big driving forces for me for, for doing this is to help people get access to it who might not get access to it like your top performers in the world like know this stuff but we guys at David Gobray for Yoka didn't know it like and like ultimately like I, I want I want to reach people like I want to reach I want people should have access to this you know this this type of content this type of learning because 
Life's just so much easier. Like, things are just so much better. You can make sense of the world. Yeah. It makes sense of the world, exactly. Like, and, you know, when you can make sense of what's happening around about you, then you can make well-informed decisions. And you don't act on emotion. You don't act mm -hmm. on reaction. You act on in a proactive, mm -hmm. calculated mm -hmm. way. Absolutely. Um, and it's not it's not hard. And so it's not easy. These challenges, they don't become easy. The tools just feel light in your hands, is how I describe it. The challenges are still just as hard as it would be, but you have the tools yeah. and you can hold them lightly. Absolutely. Well, well, let's put like, let's say you didn't know you're being coerced or manipulated or gaslighted. These are like unethical um, forms of like, let's say, mental manipulation. Let's call it that, right? If you aren't aware that's happening and you're 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 feeling terrible a lot of the time because people are doing that to you and you don't know what's happening, you're like, why is all these things happening to me? You know something's not right. But when you have these tools, like you can just set boundaries. It doesn't mean they're, they're a terrible person. Like, you know, we're all capable of it. It doesn't mean somebody's doing it from a, a bad place. But if, like, somebody does that, you can be like, well, I would like it if you didn't do that. And you can still have a relationship, but you have processes and techniques and methods to, to manage those areas and have a healthier relationship, have, uh, you know, uh, and be more proactive in, in, in managing these areas. And if anyone wants access to the support, if you're Glasgow-based, pop along to New Life Gym in Mary Hill. You'll see me and Keegan spend a couple of times there a week. Um, or look at your your website and look at your app that is, uh, has been developed and is still in development. Um, so we'll signpost that in the show notes below and uh, just head along to David's Instagram. I want to talk about your favourite job. And I believe your favourite job and perhaps most difficult job is being a father. What's it like being a dad? Being a dad is my single greatest purpose in life. Uh, is something that motivates me more than anything else. It's motivated me to change to who I am today. I want to be the best possible role model for, for my son and for like anybody who feels that I'm in a fatherly position to them as well. I, you know, yeah, I, it's my single greatest purpose in life and it's the big, a big driving force. It's for me with being a parent, it was kind of like how to break that cycle like that, you know, intergenerational kind of like cycle and and you know granted like I could look back and go I've, I've not got it right a lot of the time I made a lot of mistakes I look back at some of the methods I tried to deploy when I was younger I think I just wouldn't do that now like I just I just wouldn't do that like I remember one point I decided I was going to use a punishment tactic on on my son when he was young and right away I was like this doesn't feel right and I just I don't deploy punishment I don't like I don't I don't use punishment as a method with any children that I work with and it's not demonize anybody that does like it it's it, it can be used and it can be effective to an extent but I there's other ways to do things it's better to run towards pleasure than run away from pain yeah absolutely and but, that's one job in life that doesn't come with a manual or a process flow is being a parent and Yes, you say there's been things you're not proud of and moments you're really proud of, but the overall trajectory based on how you were parented and how your parents were parented is different levels. It's mm. an upwards trajectory from the, uh, the experiences you've had, and that's going to carry on, hopefully, 
when if and when your son has kids and i feel like that's what you want your legacy to be is yeah you're, you're a fighter you're a coach a mentee sorry a mentor uh, uh and all these things and an artist but i think your legacy one thing that you'd be proud of is being a really good dad absolutely Ab absolutely and you know if and and you, uh, what you said earlier was you you said i think that you know there's there's no kind of instruction manual or, and 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 you're right when there kind of isn't but now i feel that there kind of is like based on what i've learned and what i understand like and this is a lot of the stuff that i'm and like i'm i'm developing through the application that that i'm creating it's it's like there's there's a map there's you map out these areas and you find out how to do things and ultimately like if you can become a coach as a parent that's a real effective way to do it because as a coach you would deploy methods in terms of like getting motivation getting focus attention um collaborating trust all the things you would do as a coach um, you can you can utilize uh, as a parent as well and that was one thing that i really learned it was um and equally so the things that you learn as a parent i've deployed as a coach as well and again it's like I try my I, I'll, I'll exhaust all avenues i'll try not to use punishment I, I might have used it accidentally but i would i would always strive not not to and i feel that that's that's something that is valuable to me in terms of like the message that i put out there is that there is other ways that's super powerful mate as we come to the end of this podcast i want to ask you a final few questions really quick questions if i were to ask you what do you think your fears would say about you in one sentence? Would you, would you bring that to life? Wow. Perspective shift. Um, they would say, one of my fighters says to me, whatever you say you're going to do, you do it. What about your staff? My staff? questions maybe more playful i think my staff my staff would be would, would be more playful maybe be something along the lines of uh jill's the one that's in charge <laughs> <laughs> what about your best mate sam falahati uh, <laughs> he really likes the version of me that we spoke about he thinks that's that's fun and funny uh in a very playful and kind way and yeah he he has laughs and jokes about the old davy uh, and he pokes some fun at me for it which uh i really enjoy what about jill your partner joe joe i know what joe would say joe would say I'm a dedicated father. I'm a hard worker. Honest. And handsome. <laughs> I did in the last bit. That was me that said And that. what were the kids you work with? <laughs> I think they would say I was brave. Most of them would say I was brave. Cool. And sometimes a wee bit cringy. David, I'm going to be honest with you. 
Um, much like you were talking about earlier, um, loyalty is one of your biggest values. I've been somewhat disloyal to you and I've went behind your back. Right. Hope you're not going to kill me. It's in a positive way, I promise. There's no weapon. <laughs> I want to tell you what they actually said about you. Right, okay. <laughs> Davey has been more than a coach. When we first met, I was 17 years old. A young boy with only a dream and some motivation. I wasn't sure which direction I wanted to take MMA and or otherwise. Davey, over the course of seven years, has given me the tools to become better as a brother, a friend, a partner and a man. Davey has instilled many great values and beliefs in me through his coaching and most importantly, his friendship. I own all the skills I've got as a fighter today. That was Lee Ferguson. Thomas Callahan says, David, I don't know where to begin. I was 13 looking for something to do and I stumbled across your gym. The first thing I said to you was, are you really those guys from the posters? I found out in my 20s that my mum would phone you and make sure that I was eating properly and studying properly for exams. I followed you throughout this island with great pride. Your courage, confidence and strength was unmatched on the mats. You've always been a massive inspiration to me. I love you and I hope I can carry myself in a way that I can to make you proud. You've shaped me into a hardworking, driven, balanced individual. It's been far from easy and fair. You've had the chance to cast me aside and you remained. For that, I'm internally grateful. My life's mission is that of a son to a father to make you proud, to hopefully contribute to a better life for the whole community transform younger generations into great people. It's truly an honor to proclaim to the world that you are my coach. God bless. Love you, coach. This is one of your staff, Todd Milne. He said, I walked into the gym, a young guy lost in the world after leaving high school with no real direction. Only had a dream and vision to become an MMA fighter. Since then, many years have passed and you quite literally guided me through the most difficult terrain of growing up and becoming a man. You've taught me how to fight, you've taught me how to coach, and you've taught me how to nurture our younger generations. You've shaped me into a more confident, resilient, all-around better human being. What you've done for me can never really be put into words. My coach, my mentor, my friend for life. Love you, mate. Here's what Sam Falahati had to say. <laughs> 14 years ago, I walked into a MMA gym and met someone with qualities and traits that I admired. And I said to myself, I'm going to be a bit more like him. I'm proud to say I'm best friends with that person today. We've created many memories and have a friendship lots of people wish for. You've got the guns and I've got the hair. <laughs> Throughout the years, through all the people you've come across from all walks of life, opponents across the cage, teammates, rivals, students, be it kids or adults, I can't speak on behalf of them all. But whether they loved you or maybe hated you, because you're a mad mental cage fighter, I'm pretty sure they all respected you. I can, imagine, I can, however, speak for myself. And Davey, there is no one on this planet I respect more than you. I love you, my friend. So I'm not going to tell you who this is from, but I'm going to just share your story. David really is one of the best guys I know. He makes me laugh, tells me stories, teaches me and encourages me. Over the years, we have experienced so much together, from martial arts training to mental performance training to photo shoots to cold water swimming and to bonsai creations. David invests a lot of time and effort into helping myself and others, and nothing is ever too much trouble. He has built my confidence and belief in myself. I hope to be a professional MMA fighter just like him when I'm older. He's more than just my coach, he is my mentor, my teacher, and my friend. We've always had such an amazing bond, and I will always try to make him proud. David is such a positive influence in my life, and I'm 
so lucky and grateful to have him in my corner. That's Adam. And here's what Jill had to say. <laughs> the first time I met Davey, he bounced into the gym 10 minutes late and pure. I was pure flustered. I thought, who is this weirdo with his mad hair, funny looking feet and Mortal Kombat tattoo? He started telling me a story and a few seconds into it, I thought, this is the Disneyland version. He's absolutely <laughs> fucking mental. I, I told him that and this look of mischief ran across his face. He knew I was into him from the get-go. The scheme kid in me instantly recognised the scheme boy in him. Ten years later, we're here with a family, business, and a whole host of memories together. Behind his smiley, energetic demeanour, there was a pretty broken guy in there. Yet despite the hand he was dealt, and some of which he created, he was the most compassionate and caring person I had ever met. He was pretty tore up, but still put his David Jr. and me at the centre of everything. I could talk for years about the positive impact he's had on our lives, but I think the most remarkable thing is that his dedication to healing himself. He's worked tirelessly to mend those broken pieces, to throw out the bits that were too far gone and build new parts that serve him and ultimately us. At times, it's been grueling and ruthless for him, but he's consistently kept working to heal. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do, as realistically it's a forever action. We've formed the ultimate fight team in ourselves. We go to war with each other, hold the, each other up when we get an eight count and corner each other through life. I wouldn't want anyone else in my corner. I've got one more from a Kate Foster. Oh, wow. <laughs> my recollection of David is a young, quiet, red-headed boy walking into our kickboxing club in Clyde Bank, mostly keeping to himself. He was a very determined boy, and I remember him being quite hard on himself if he didn't pick things up quickly or felt that he could have done something better. He lacked a bit of self-belief, and I recall trying to trying hard to talk to him into competing as we saw a natural talent and a fire in his belly. I'm genuinely in awe of the man that he's grown up to be. Not only his own martial arts career, but the investment he puts into others, especially kids. I love watching him progress so successfully through life and don't doubt there's plenty more achievements to come. We're very, very proud that David started his journey with us and to think we have influenced his career, even in the slightest, warms my heart. We truly wish him all the best. So these, this is what the people actually have to say about you, mate. Wow. I think that's a wrap for the podcast. Can't believe you've done that. <laughs> Can't believe you've done that. It's one of the nicest things that anybody's ever done for me, man. That's... Really? Mate, you've done so much for me. It was a, it was a pleasure to, to so talk thoughtful. to all these people and, and bring that to life. Mate, I really appreciate you. And similar to... To everyone who spoke, I can speak so highly about you too, mate. Thanks for coming to the podcast. What a way to end the podcast, leaving my guest in tears. But hopefully that shows the level of transparency and vulnerability that David brought to the podcast. And I really hope that you took something from his roller coaster of a journey. What an inspiring man. Please reach out to him. Please share your love for this podcast. Share it far and wide. I'm so, so proud and moved by that episode. I've got a lump in my throat just summarizing it at the moment. You guys mean the world to me. Thanks for sticking around. And remember, visit the sponsor, a new life gym in Mary Hill. Tell them I sent you. Thanks for sticking around and see you in the next one.